You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope. This program is entitled Preaching to the Birds. And it's an introduction to the idea that the church has a mission to the creation. Or, in other words, an introduction to the whole concept of eco-theology. Now, over the years, I've had some wonderful opportunities to speak in different fora. And in 2013, I was invited to give the Tinsley Annual Public Lecture. That is at the Tinsley Institute of Mission Studies at Morling College, the Baptist College in Sydney. And so what I want to do in this program is basically read the booklet, which is available for download by the Tinsley Institute uh, and also from my own academia page, and stop and explain some ideas and maybe where I might see things a little bit differently seven years on. So without further ado, preaching to the birds. Ecomissiology sees mission in terms of reconciliation at all levels. It recognises that the God who creates is also the God who redeems all that God has made. This holistic mission includes both eco-justice for the poor as well as care for creation for its own sake. This talk will develop an eco-missiological framework based upon a narrative reading of the Bible, including reflections on eco-praxis such as holistic mission and dialogue with environmentalists. Uh, In plainer speak, what I do is I build a framework of mission that's particularly focused on the creation. It's based upon reading the Bible as an unfolding story from creation to new creation. And it reflects a little bit on praxis or the stuff that we do. So it's not meant to be just theory. And I've been involved um, or tried to be involved in get going an organization called Erosha in Australia. And others have run with that ball. But I'm profoundly interested in how we actually get our hands dirty in the dirt, as it were. With apologies to the Blues Brothers, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm on a mission from God. And if you have never seen the movie Blues Brothers, you're missing out. But also with apologies to Amos. I'm not a missiologist, nor am I the son of a missiologist. For I'm a meteorologist and a teacher of students. That's a very bad paraphrase of Amos 7.14. You see, I never intended to study missiology as a theology undergraduate. Having spent many years pondering overseas mission and deciding I was neither suited nor called to it, I decided that I didn't need missiology, which is the study of missions. However, as Frost and Hirsch have stated, uh, from memory the, the title of the book is The Shape of Things to Come, or something like that, The church is not truly the church unless it is missionally shaped. 
Like many others, I had become comfortable with Christendom, comfortable with the attractional model of church, and kind of lazy. So Christendom is the idea that even if there's not an established church, that Christianity is the established um, religion of the West, and there's kind of a cultural Christianity, and it's not too awkward a thing to be a Christian. An attractional model of church is basically, if you want people to know more about Jesus, if you want to share your faith, and try not to be too obnoxious about it, then you invite people to church and they hear a Bible talk and, and so on and so forth. And so what I'm proposing is something a bit different. My journey to being an aspiring eco-missiologist, a mouthful, is a long one and has gone through four stages. And I talked a little bit about this in the first episode of this podcast. Firstly, from a young age, I developed a growing awareness of and delight in the natural world, spawned by natural curiosity, education, and the right sort of television. A second important stage was a growing awareness of our impact upon the natural world, which has been ongoing with the emergence in the popular mind over the past few years of an awareness of climate change slash global warming. This present this sorry, this represents the beginning of what Pope John Paul II called an ecological conversion. Yet because humans are meant to minister rather than exercise absolute lordship over creation, ecological mission, conversion rather can only occur properly after conversion to faith in the Lord Jesus. That's in a Christian sense, of course, which is not to say that those outside the church don't engage in this kind of activity, but I'm specifically thinking Christianly. What seems to be missing in the experience of many Christians is the fourth stage which is recognition of our connectedness to the rest of creation and our responsibility as God's image. This is the subject of eco-missiology and the theme of this podcast episode. Thus far, I have assumed that that eco-missiology is a sensible theological concept without defining it. According to the late Ross Langmead, who was a missiologist at Whitley College, where I'm now doing my master's, Eco-missiology sees mission in terms of reconciliation at all levels. The gospel, the good news, is broader than, quote, me and Jesus, because God is involved with the whole of creation, not just human beings. Eco-missiology is concerned for creation because God saves us with and not from creation. Eco-missiology is also a matter of eco-justice, since it is the global poor who face the worst effects of environmental degradation, and includes eco-spirituality, which represents a new way of seeing creation, because it views caring for creation in its own right as a form of mission. Traditional evangelical theology has had difficulty in accommodating an eco-missiology given its views of salvation. Uh, Leon Morris identifies euangelion, which is the Greek word from which we get evangelism and so on, as a Pauline word meaning, quote, the news of what God has done in Christ for man's salvation. Now, it's an old quote, so when he says man's, he he does mean uh, humanities. Langmead observes that many Christians hold a rather apocalyptic, kind of end times, dramatic view, and dualistic view, where we are saved from and not with the creation. You know, it's that kind of the emphasis on going to heaven when we die, being raptured and the earth burnt up. It's the superiority of the soul over the body. He suggests that this is due to an overemphasis on divine transcendence, that God is wholly other, 
and Christ's atoning work on the cross, as opposed to divine imminence and Christ as creator. And you get a really strong sense of that in uh, the first chapter of John's Gospel and the first chapter of Ephesians and Colossians. Many Christians are wary of involvement in environmental issues due to a fear of syncretism, which is a, a merging of more than one worldview, so Christianity and the environment or Christianity and Buddhism or so on, and suspicion of the green agenda, which is in essence a dislike for what people rather tiringly refer to as cultural Marxism. However, the church cannot afford to ignore a mission that encompasses the more than human sphere. We live in an age known as the Anthropocene, and I'll talk more about this over subsequent episodes, where humans represent a geological force. We have become so powerful through technology that we can remove entire mountains, desolate large stretches of ocean, pollute our atmosphere, change weather patterns, and precipitate mass extinction. Sea level rise due to global warming is already threatening some island communities, such as the Katara Islanders and the Tuvaluans. Bangladeshis are steadily losing land to sea level rise and upstream water usage. Diseases like malaria are spreading into highland areas where previously they had been unknown. The global poor are those most sensitive to climate change. However, the developed world also seems poorly positioned to cope with the impacts of as rising temperatures are likely contributing to weather extremes across the globe. Meanwhile, we've entered into a post-Christendom phase of history in the West, one which New Testament theologian and historian Tom Wright describes as a pagan world much resembling the first century. The rising ecological consciousness has been accompanied by a growing interest in Eastern religions and alternative spiritualities, well, alternative to Christianity at least. Since the publication of Lynn White's 1966 lecture, Christianity stands accused of being anthropocentric or human-centred and the cause of environmental abuse in the West. While this thesis has been critiqued many times, the view remains in the popular imagination and not without some cause. My own dialogue with some deep ecologists has typically been aggressive and dismissive of Christianity. Even in the academy, some theologians want to sideline or even ignore what they refer to as grey texts, like Genesis 1, 26-28. Therefore, the missional church needs to address these concerns in its theology and praxis by rediscovering the holistic nature of the biblical narrative. Uh, and if I'd written this more recently, I'd say we'd need to turn to indigenous theologies to help us do this, because they point us back uh, to the future, as it were. In this way, we avoid falling prey to what C.S. Lewis called Christianity and, the wedding of our own pet causes to the faith. Likewise, in developing a thick biblical narrative, we seek to avoid tokenism or our eco-mission being viewed as absurd as St. Francis's preaching to the birds, as if they needed to hear the sermon, when in fact it's us that the birds should be preaching to. So, mission and an eco-narrative. Worldviews, according to Tom Wright, are the precognitive, presuppositional stages of culture that often go unexamined because they are hidden from view. You just take them for granted, you don't think about them. Worldviews consist of four key ideas. Narratives, or stories, are the way in which we view and understand the world around us, be they religious or secular. Think, for example, of the role of the story of the Anzacs, uh, the role that it plays in 
for some Australians. From these stories, we are able to address the basic questions of life, such as, who are we? Why are we here? What is wrong with the world and how do we fix it? Australians, for example, often think of themselves as stoic battlers, braving the elements and the hardships of life, in the Anzac spirit. Thirdly, worldviews provide us with the symbols that we need, such as events, and think about national holidays like Anzac Day, and artefacts such as flags and anthems. Such symbols define communities acting as boundary markers. Finally, praxis is the way of being in the world, the sorts of actions that a community performs reflecting the worldview. Australian generosity is grounded in our belief of the Stoic battler needing a hand from time to time to help them stand on their own two feet again. Each of these four elements interacts with and informs the other, and in the booklet I've got a little schematic ripped off from Tom Wright's The New Testament and the People of God. The way in which we as Christians understand issues such as the environment is critically dependent on the way in which we read scripture. How do we read the Bible? A US statement published by Southern Baptists declares that they could take no position on global warming because they had no special revelation. Roger Olson, who's an American Baptist scholar, notes that many conservative evangelicals approach scripture as a source of propositional statements, the statements of what is. Often they can equate their own tradition's formulation of those statements on a level close to scripture and form their theology as a bounded set. If there are no appropriate propositional statements for an issue, you know, thou shalt slash shalt not, then an issue can be ignored. In contrast, Olson sees the Bible as narrative. A narrative theology of scripture is post-foundational. What does that mean? It means it does not seek to abstract the propositions from the narrative of scripture to construct an indubitable, timeless set of doctrines but instead emphasises the transformative nature of Scripture and recognises that such transformation does not occur solely via the transfer of information. In other words, you tell the story. Tom Wright has developed a five-act hermeneutic of Scripture as narrative, consisting of creation, fall, Israel, Jesus and the Church. He likens this model to a long-lost Shakespearean play, where the first four acts survive intact but only the start and the end of the fifth act are extant. What is required, then, is an imaginative improvisation based on the available information. A careful reading of scripture shows how each of the acts supports an eco-missiological reading. And what I'll do now, and after the break, is trace out such a reading with particular emphasis on the first and the fifth acts. So more shortly. Welcome back from the break, and let's see how far we get through this lecture for this episode. So the first element of the narrative uh, model of scripture that Tom Wright proposes is, of course, creation. In his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, 
John Walton recognises that Genesis 1 is ancient cosmology, with a very different ontology, that is, view of what it is to be, to the one moderns use to understand the world. For example, consider the difference between the ontology of a chair and that of a business. While the ontology of a chair is largely material, that is, it involves a consideration of the materials used to make it, the design and the manufacturing process, what is the ontology of a business? When does it exist? A company exists when it exists legally and begins to do business, that is, when it is performing its function as a company. Or consider a marriage. A marriage is not physically constructed as much as legally recognised and relationally constituted. Walton argues that the best way to understand the creative acts of God in Genesis 1 is using a functional ontology. One of the things this functional or functionary model does is it ties human culture to our understanding of creation, as opposed to the reductionist perspective of science. Again, not to denigrate science, but to give it its rightful place. Theologian Michael Velker notes creation is not to be simply identified with nature, but includes it. This is evident, for example, in the role the lights in the sky play in marking out days, seasons and years, as we read about in Genesis 1.14, the so-called appointed times. And this refers ultimately to the events in the religious and agricultural calendar of the Israelites. The heavens are the place where natural forces determine life and culture. Human beings are central to the plot, not a distraction from it. This warns us against the extremes that say large sections of the world should be set aside as, quote, wilderness, where humans are not allowed, though the idea of reserves or world heritage areas is a valuable one. And yet, as we shall see below, we need also to avoid ideas of unfettered usage. And I'll talk about wilderness and theology in subsequent episodes. The ordering of functions and functionaries in creation ends with God resting on the seventh day, Genesis 2.2 and Exodus 20.11. In the ancient Near East, temples were built so that deities could rest and exercise their divine rule. And this is the subject of Psalm 132, where God's resting place is identified with the Ark and Zion, where he sits enthroned. Likewise, in Isaiah 66, 1-2, heaven is God's throne and the earth his footstool. Walton concludes that Genesis 1 recounts the establishing of the function of a cosmic temple from which God can rule. Now, this is something of a contentious point, and I'll return to it again, as I keep saying in in subsequent programs, but it certainly sets the foundation for thinking of creation as a temple and how temples function. Now, some reflection of this idea is found in the construction of the Jerusalem temple, with the water basin reflecting the sea, and the pillars, possibly pillars of the earth, and you can read about that in 1 Kings 7. The Hebrew word for light, used in connection with a tabernacle lamp, is the same word used for the celestial bodies on the fourth day of creation. So there's some strong connections there. So God rules from his cosmic temple, and it is here again that we see the important role given to humanity, not to serve Mother Earth, but God himself and his representatives. Rick Watts, Australian theologian, notes that there are close parallels with the account of the formation of human beings from the dust and the breathing in of divine breath in Genesis 2, and how ancient and modern idols are made. The key to eco-mission is to recognise that creation is the temple cosmos in which everything has a function. Our function as the imago Dei, or the image of God, is to carry out the eco-missio Dei, or the ecological mission of God. In the temple cosmos, 
the non-human creation has its role in praising God. Trees in particular are given a voice. You see that in Isaiah 14 and chapter 44. But God is glad in all his works. Psalm 104 verse 31. Be Be it the birds in the trees, or the trees themselves, or Leviathan sporting in the sea, the sea monster. So long as creatures are free to do what it is they are meant to do, they fulfill their role. Psalm 104 is careful to affirm that humanity is part of and not separate from the rest of what God has done. And this is where we trip over. This psalm therefore both affirms the human, uh, the value of human existence and economic activity and the value of the rest of the creation to God and provides us with a theology of wilderness or at the very least a theology of non-human life as important and God's care for those creatures that lie entirely outside of the economic order as Israel understood it. So that's the creation. Then the what's referred to as the fall. The fall in Genesis 3 clearly marks a break in human divine relationships or, or some kind of disruption. The, pair, the repair of which is the focus of much atonement theology in the New Testament. Likewise, chapters which follow illustrate the breakdown of human relationships in a pattern of violence and murder. Furthermore, the story of the Tower of Babel illustrates the corporate nature of sin, idolatry, rebellion and the misuse of technology. And again, this is something I'll come back to in a future episode. What is left often emphasised is the break in relationship between humanity and the environment in the form of a curse of the ground in Genesis 3.17 although the story of Noah is meant to repair this. The culmination of this curse is the uncreation of the flood, and yet the ark represents not only the salvation of humanity, but also a selection of the non-human creation. This is a theme that Paul echoes in Romans 8, to which we will return shortly. So while people might look from the outside of the church, and indeed the inside, and look with horror at the destruction of the entire of the created order in the flood story, again, something to be... uh, examined in greater detail at another time, fundamentally it's, it's as much as anything a story of recreation. Then we come to Israel. The call of Abram, later Abraham, was God's plan to undo the fall by choosing a people for himself along whom, uh, among whom which he could dwell, Exodus 29.45, and bring blessing to the whole world. That's Genesis 12. God led his people through the Exodus and dwelt among them within the tabernacle above the mercy seat of the ark. You read that in Exodus 25, which found a permanent home in the temple built during the rule of Solomon. See 1 Kings 8. However, God could not be contained within creation, let alone the Jerusalem temple. And you read that in Solomon's uh, dedication uh, speech in 1 Kings 8 and verse 27. Therefore, God's concern for all of creation is not limited by his particular relationship with a covenant people, be they Israel indeed or the church today. Land is a central theme of the Old Testament, God's people in God's place under God's blessing. While much of how the land is described is in terms of agricultural fertility, there are texts that treat it in a more holistic way. As well as laws covering the treatment of livestock, so Deuteronomy 23.4, and their Sabbath rest, Exodus 20.10, the Sabbath year, described in Exodus 23.10 and 11, includes the wild animals, and later part of Leviticus as well. Furthermore, theologian Michael Northcote notes that there is a close connection between ecological disasters, as we describe them, 
and exile on the one hand, and unfaithfulness to the laws and worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, on the other in passages like Jeremiah 5, 22-28. There was a direct connection between empire building, so amassing power and standing armies and so on, and the pursuit of pagan idols of fertility, which led to injustice and failure to keep Sabbath economics, that is the, circu- the regular pattern of rest and the circulation of wealth rather than its collection, and ecology. Under such circumstances, ecological collapse was a quote natu- was natural and inevitable. So if you like, uh, the character of God and the limits are built into the creation itself and are unleashed when we do the wrong thing. What about Jesus? Well, many years ago, I heard a debate at Monash University, where I was an undergraduate, between ethicist Peter Singer and an AOG pastor. Singer maintained that Christianity was not a useful basis for environmental ethics because Jesus cursed a fig tree to wither and die and caused the death of a herd of swine. You know, that story about the demons being cast into them. Now, if we go looking for the passage that says, Thou shalt plant trees from Jesus, we will be disappointed. Instead, we need to understand where Jesus saw himself with regards to God's unfolding narrative. When Jesus proclaimed the gospel, uh, what did he mean? Was it inclusive of echo-mission? Euangelion is found in the Greek Old Testament, remember that's the word for good news in the Greek, in passages such as Isaiah 49, that's 40 verse 9, and 52. That's chapter 52. In Isaiah 40, the heralding of the good news is proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, verses 1 and 9, the coming of God, verses 3 to 5, and the gathering in of his flock, that is Israel, verses 10 and 11, which was effectively the return from exile. Israel's exile was the result of breaking the covenant with Israel's God, and you read about that at the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 28, by committing idolatry. Isaiah, therefore, reaffirms the superiority of the God of Israel over pagan idols. That's in verse 12 and following, particularly 18 and 20. And Tom Wright suggests that many first century Jews thought of themselves as living in a continuing narrative stretching from earliest times through ancient prophecies and on towards a climactic moment of deliverance, which which might come at any moment. And that also... This continuing narrative was currently seen on the basis of Daniel chapter 9 as a long passage through a state of continuing exile, be it Roman or Persian. Um, If Gentiles were in charge, God was not truly king. Hence, Euangelion carried with it a world of meaning. God's forgiveness, end of exile and political oppression and the blessing of Israel's God. Paul's contention is that the salvific promises, the promises of salvation, made to Israel are fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus. To suggest that Jesus, uh, say in Mark 1 to 14 to 15, or Paul in Romans 1, somehow spiritualized the word euangelion, emptying it of all political meaning, simply beggars belief. And the contemporary uh, first century Roman usage is particularly illuminating. Listen to this a saviour for us and those who come after us, to make war to cease, to create order everywhere. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the world of the glad tidings that have come to men through him. And the word translated glad tidings is, tidings rather, is good news or euangelion. 
The value of this broader view of the gospel for echo mission is first that people are not saved from the earth, but expect to be renewed with the earth. God's people in God's place. Any well thought out resurrection theology should also make this clear. And that's the central thrust of Romans 8. Secondly, the gospel challenges all empires, and empires tend to be inherently destructive of the environment, be they Rome or profit-driven multinational petroleum companies, to name just a couple. Related to this understanding of the gospel and the kingdom of God is the model of the atonement known as Christus Victor. As Tom Wright notes in his book, Evil and the Justice of God, this is the view that on the cross, Jesus has won a victory over the powers of evil. The view of evil presented is non-dualistic in that it recognises with Alexander Solzhenitsyn, as he talks about in the Gulag Archipelago, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the dividing line, sorry, the line, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Further, Evil is not simply individual, but can be corporate and systemic. The path that led to the cross was a downward spiral of evil, from the ever-present Roman Empire, as discussed above, to the corruption of Israel and her temple, and the shadowy, super-personal powers of darkness lurking in the background. These powers of darkness could enter into Judas, or be personified in attitudes like Peter's to Jesus' vocation. In dealing with evil, Jesus identified with Israel, warned her of the consequences of her actions and stood in her place and in the place of all humanity on the cross. Right, as worth quoting at length here. Jesus suffers the full consequences of evil, evil from the political, social, cultural, personal, moral, religious and spiritual angles all rolled into one. Evil in the downward spiral hurtling towards the pit of destruction and despair. And he does so precisely as the act of redemption of taking that downward fall and exhausting it, so that there may be new creation, new covenant, forgiveness, freedom and hope. The call of the gospel is for the church to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. In this view of the cross, it is this view of the cross rather that makes it easier to affirm with Paul that Christ reconciles all things to himself. That's Colossians 1.20 and Ephesians 1.10 through that suffering love. And we shall see uh, in the next episode uh, for us to suffer with creation for its redemption. So uh, wait till uh, next episode where we'll finish off uh, this lecture and think about the church's role, both theologically and in praxis. So thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.